The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, I think... Uh, Think we'll start. So, uh, hi everyone. Uh, I'm zooming in from Kildare in what is a typically Irish misly February afternoon. Uh, but hopefully, we'll be able to shake off some of that post Valentine's Day fatigue with some wonderfully spooky MR James talk this afternoon. Uh, so, with two of our conveners here currently in self isolation. I think it only proper to dedicate the seminar to those of you who may be currently confined uh, to single rooms. So, you know, the seminar is dedicated to you. Uh, thanks everyone for coming. Welcome to the staff postgraduate seminar series, which is brought to you by PhD students from the School of English, Claire Point and Smith, Geneva Bianchini, as well as myself. Um, I'd like also to mention Eric Schwartz who convened for the series last term. Uh, we are being kindly hosted by the Long Room Hub, which is Trinity College's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And for more information on some really great events coming up, you can go to the What's On section of the Long Room Hub website. <clears throat> Excuse me. You'll also find more information on upcoming events from the School of English, including our very own seminar series. Uh, the series is a fortnightly event showcasing scholarship from a pool of immensely talented speakers, if I do say so myself, uh, including our distinguished guests, our wonderful PhD cohort, and our excellent members of faculty, such as today's speaker, Professor Daryl Jones, whose paper is entitled M.R. James, The Demon in the Library. Daryl Jones is Professor of Modern British Literature and Culture in the School of English, where he has taught since 1994. Uh, he is author or editor of 13 books, including most recently Horror, a very short introduction by Oxford University Press. In 2011, he edited the collected ghost stories of M.R. James, also for Oxford University Press. Uh, he's general editor of the forthcoming nine-volumed Oxford Sherlock Holmes collection, for which he is editing The Hound of the Baskervilles and also The Green Flag for the Edinburgh Conan Doyle. Uh, he's currently writing a large-scale biography of M.R. James, also to be published by Oxford University Press. Uh, a version of today's talk is forthcoming in Libraries in Literature, edited by Robert Crawford and Alice Crawford. And so without further ado, I will hand you over to our Professor Daryl Jones. Thanks very much, Ola, and uh, thanks to Ola and uh, Genera and Claire for inviting me. Uh, I, I hope you can all hear me, um, and thank you all for coming. So um, I'm going to try sharing my screen a moment now. So I hope you can all see that. Um, so yes, my talk today is called M.R. James, the demon in the library. Uh, here is M.R. James in a library, two libraries. So to start, widely recognized during his own lifetime as the preeminent Anglophone codicologist, M.R. James spent much of his life 
in libraries. His scholarly output over a period of some 40 years was prodigious, and at the heart of it is the series of descriptive catalogues he produced of the manuscript holdings of various libraries and collections. There are 36 of these catalogues in all, including catalogues of the collections of 16 Cambridge colleges. There were 21 colleges at the time of James's death in 1936, so he did almost all of the Cambridge colleges, plus those of other institutions with which he was associated, Eton College and the Fitzwilliam Museum, plus also the manuscript collections of the J.P. Morgan Library, the John Rylands Library, Lambeth Palace, there were five volumes of this, Westminster Abbey, Aberdeen University Library, and a number of other smaller collections. In 1926, he embarked on his most ambitious project, a catalogue of the entire medieval manuscript collection of Cambridge University Library, an endeavour so vast that it remained unfinished on his death and was never published. His biographer, Richard William Pfaff, puts it well when he suggests that in his catalogue endeavours, M.R. James was trying to reconstruct, quote, a bibliothèque imaginaire of the whole of medieval England, which he carried in his mind. In an obituary notice for James, the librarian and scholar Stephen Gaisley wrote of James, there has never been before, and probably there never will be again, a single man with the same accomplishment and combination of memory, paleography, medieval learning and artistic knowledge. I consider him in volume of learning, the greatest scholar it has been my good fortune to know. Modern codicologists have tended to view James as a brilliant but eccentric cataloger, vastly knowledgeable and with a phenomenal work ethic, but also with a tendency to limit himself only to describing those elements of manuscripts in which he was personally interested. In approaching the business of cataloguing, James himself acknowledged that he, he had very little to work with in terms of established practice. I've had to learn my job as I went on, he wrote. My catalogues were on a scale that had not been tried before. As well as the catalogues, James produced an enormous body of scholarly lit literature, monographs, critical editions, articles, on a wide variety of libraries and their contents. He also, of course, wrote ghost stories. Still credited today with being among the best in the genre, James's tales employ a lucid and frequently conversational narrative style, often a product of the occasions of their composition and telling as Christmas entertainments for friends and Cambridge colleagues. And they specialize in suggesting rather than depicting supernatural events. His ghosts are often glimpsed figures black shadows, strange smells, inchoate masses, or things, in his own words, ill-defined and impalpable, which manifest themselves in the anxiety, disturbance, and often illness of his protagonists. His technique of placing his characters in realistic everyday contexts, the contexts, that is, in which his own life was lived, and then, and I quote, into this calm environment, letting the ominous thing put out its head, and obtrusively at first, then more intently until it holds the stage, 
This can be seen as moving the ghost story on from its Gothic 19th century predecessors and beginning to redefine it for the 20th century. James's stories are a kind of imaginative surplus or byproduct of his formal scholarship, to which they are intimately connected. His first catalogue appeared in 1895, the same year that his first ghost story appeared in print. This was Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, a tale of haunted biblioclasty, in the words of the critic Patrick J. Murphy, that recoils at the plundering of medieval manuscripts, even as it plunders James's dearest scholarly interests as a rich vein of imaginative material. Unsurprisingly then, libraries feature in many of the stories and in virtually all of those in the first two volumes, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, 1904, and More Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, 1911, which were both published while James was still at King's College, Cambridge. James was a great scholar and a great institutionalist, director of the Fitzwilliam Museum, Provost of King's, Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, Provost of Eton, Order of Merit. And yet the stories seem to reveal disturbances below the smooth surface of an extraordinarily successful intellectual and public career. The critic Peter Davidson has rightly commented on James's remarkably bleak sensibility, which views the world as a supernatural minefield. So in this talk, I'll be looking at the ways in which James's stories represent libraries in particular, as sites of mystery, anxiety, and terror, as fundamentally occult spaces. The occult is rejected knowledge. James Webb's definition is one which is widely accepted and used by most modern scholars of the occult. The dialectic, the creative tension between institutional scholarship and unlicensed occult research, between manuscript cataloger and ghost story writer, makes James such a powerful and effective writer of supernatural fiction. As Stephen Gaisley and many others testified, he simply knew more than anyone else. And the demonic and the supernatural were a large part of what he knew. So in the next section of the talk, I'll give an overview of some of James's stories, looking at ways in which codicological or bibliographical research is figured in his work as a dangerous activity, a playing with forces which typically unleash demons. And the final part of the talk, I'll offer an extended reading of his most librarianly story, the Tractate Midoth, whose meaning grows out of an intimate understanding of the cataloging system and even the very floor plan of Cambridge University Library, the library for whose manuscript collection James dreamed of creating a total catalogue. So Shane Leslie, the Irish diplomat and home ruler who knew James well, he was a student at King's and the pair corresponded right up until James's death, thought of him, thought of James as, quote, a kind of magus to whom all the secrets of a manuscript were revealed at a single glance, who never forgot anything 
and who had an extra natural insight into ghostly worlds. The word magus often accompanied descriptions of James. L.J. Lloyd closes a 1947 critical essay by adapting the last line of James's 1914 story, an episode of Cathedral History, Ibi Kubawit Lamia, there lay a Lamia, as Ibi Kubawit Magus, there lay a Magus. Um, Ibi Kubawit Lamia is from the Vulgate version of Isaiah 3414, which the King James Version translates as the screech owl shall rest there and the Revised Standard Version as There Shall the Night Hag Alight. And this is a passage from which James also quotes in Canon Alberic. James was acutely aware of the intimate historical connections between books, manuscripts and writing on the one hand, and magic, the arcane and the occult on the other. And thus of the sense in which all libraries are fundamentally supernatural spaces. As the historian of magic Owen Davis writes, in its deep origins, quote, the very act of writing itself was imbued with occult or hidden power. The word grimoire, a magical book, is a derivation of grammar. In 1921, James set about the task of imaginatively reconstructing and cataloging the library of the Elizabethan magus John Dee. James was interested in Dee as simultaneously a magician and a bibliophile. For Dee, the former activity was dependent on the latter to such an extent that he proposed a cataloguing project of his own, the creation of a kind of British library of magic. Dee, James thought, was not merely an alchemist and a spiritualist, but a really learned man and one who had done his best to stimulate interest in the rescuing of manuscripts from the dissolved monastic libraries and to introduce the sovereign to establish a central national collection of them. When Dee left England in 1583 for a journey to Bohemia and Poland, his neighbors in Mortlake broke into his house, stole his scientific instruments and plundered his library. The cause of the raid, James comments, was no doubt Dee's dealings with spirits, which not unnaturally earned him the reputation of being a sorcerer. Dee's library contained an extensive selection of magical and alchemical works by Roger Bacon, Albertus Magnus, Ramon Lull, and others. The classical scholar, Sir Roger Miners, who was a pupil at Eton when James returned there in 1918, recalled, quote, the feeling when you met him, he was slightly larger than life and could, if necessary, conjure a demon out of a brass bottle or tell you the names of the soldiers at the foot of the cross. As the editor and translator of the definitive 1924 Oxford edition of the Apocryphal New Testament, James certainly knew that one of the soldiers was, according to uh, the apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus or the act of Pilate called Longinus. Here he is uh, in James's translation, Longinus the soldier pierced his side with a spear. Devils and demons of various kinds played an important role in James's imaginary. 
the Lamia and the Magus naturally had much to do with one another. It's not always strictly accurate to refer to his tales as ghost stories. Many of them are in fact tales of occult demonology. In his library researches, James encountered demons on an almost daily basis. In James's first published story, Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, and this is uh, the illustration to the first edition uh, of the Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by James McBride, who was a friend of M.R. James's, and the uh, the, the protagonist, the the, the the man in the figure here, is clearly um, a drawing of James himself. So in Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, uh, 1895, a demon is conjured, uh, not from a bottle, but seemingly from a book, which Deniston, a curator at the Fitzwilliam Museum, of which James was the director from 1893 to 1908, discovers during a, vi a visit to Saint Bertrand de Camarnes in the Pyrenees, which James himself visited in the spring of 1892. At the same time as James was writing Canon Alberic, he was cataloguing the manuscript collection at the, at the Fitzwilliam. His published catalogue, also from 1895, contains dozens of descriptions of the various devils and demons he encountered in the Fitzwilliam collection. In the death of Judas, for example, in MS 2024A27, quote, a black devil flying down from right draws his nude soul out of his stomach. An illustration from the Legenda Aurea in MS 22P2455 has black clouds, devils on earth, men in eve's morning, hellhounds running about hills, lurid sky. While another at MS 22P194153 has Aegeus prostrate with, a prostrate with a staff, a devil strangles him behind. Often these devils are described as being shaggy or hairy. In a manner characteristic of James, Canon Albrecht's demon is covered in coarse black hairs. In James's story, the 17th century canon Albrecht de Molion, quote, had doubtless plundered the chapter library of Saint-Bertrand to form this priceless scrapbook. Canon Albrecht's scrapbook itself is a compendium of codicological wonders, including, quote, a fragment of the copy of Papias on the words of our Lord, which was known to have existed as late as the 12th century at Nîmes. This particular manuscript long obsessed James. In 1888, several years before writing Canon Albrecht, he went on an archeological dig to Cyprus, where he visited the monastery of the Cypriot Saint Mnason, where he, which he found in a frightful state, he says. This was a particular disappointment, as his friend Lionel Ford wrote that he pictured him in a monastery, uprooting a papyrus from a bundle of dull old manuscripts. This was something the pair had evidently discussed, as papyrus took on an almost talismanic significance for James as the supreme prize for the manuscript hunter. When he first got wind of the possibility of going to Cyprus, he had confided to his parents that, quote, if a copy of Papias turns up, I shall be all the better pleased. His 1990 mon uh, monograph on codicology, The Wanderings and Homes of Manuscripts, in this James returned to this particular manuscript, writing, it is almost a relief 
that catalogues of ancient libraries do not tell us of supremely desirable things, such as papyrus on the oracles of the Lord or the complete histories and annals of Tacitus. Also included in the scrapbook is an illustration of King Solomon commanding a demon. This is an illustration from the apocryphal Testament of Solomon, uh, a work which James knew very well and wrote about many times. Uh, here are a couple of illustrations uh, from the Testament of Solomon of Solomon commanding a variety of demons. Uh, and James began rather amazingly to write about the Testament of Solomon uh, with Occult Sciences, a paper he delivered in Eton in February 1881, when he was 18 years old, and which he'd written under the influence of Colin de Plancy's Encyclopedia of Demonology, the Dictionnaire Infernal. This appalling book, to use James's own phrase, was first published in 1818, and the 1863 edition, uh, which James read, is full of memorably detailed illustrations by Louis Le Breton of a great number of demons. Uh, here they are in front of you, uh, including, you'll see on the right there, Beelzebub or Beelzebuf, Lord of the Flies. James had first encountered this book in 1879, in July 1879, when he was 16 years old. The Testament of Solomon is a classic of demonology in which King Solomon commands a variety of demons, beginning with Ornias and including Beelzebul, sick, himself, and makes them do his bidding, which includes building the temple in Jerusalem. The definitive English translation of the Testament of Solomon was published by the Oxford theologian and Orientalist F.C. Conibier in the Jewish Quarterly Review in 1898, though James also provided a loose translation and paraphrase in his book, Old Testament Legends from 1913. And here's an illustration from Old Testament Legends uh, of the, the demon of the Red Sea helping Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem. In the 1920s, James corresponded with the great historian of magic, Lynn Thorndike, helping him with some of his details, some of the details for his chapter on Solomonic magic in volume two of his eight volume History of Magic and Experimental Science. John Dee's library as constructed or reconstructed by James contains at least one book of Solomonic magic, the alchemical De Philosophia Solomonis. Like Solomon, Canon Albrecht summons a demon who offers him wealth and foresight. Answers of the 12th of December, 1694. It was asked, shall I find it? Thou shalt. Shall I become rich? Thou wilt. Shall I live an object of envy? Thou wilt. Shall I die in my bed? Thou wilt. The illustration in the story from the Testament of, of Solomon offers a memorable account of the demon's appearance. Imagine one of the awful, bird-catching spiders of South America translated into human form, and you will have some faint conception of the terror inspired by this appalling effigy. One remark is universally made by those to whom I have shown the picture. It was drawn from the life. 
The critic Helen Grant has plausibly identified this demon as Onias, the major recurring demon from the Testament of Solomon. The story comes to a climax when the demon manifests itself behind Deniston's head as he reads the scrapbook. The scrapbook goes to the Fitzwilliam Museum, here called the Wentworth Collection, all except the illustration, which is photographed and then burnt. As a young man in the early 1880s, James read, he tells us, Barrett's Magus and other classics of wizardry, which made a deep impression on me. Drawing freely on the works of Cornelius Agrippa, Francis Barrett's occult opus, The Magus of 1801, was, in the words of Owen Davis, the first major English discourse on spirit conjuration since the 17th century, and a book which its author believed would help to bring about an English magical renaissance. The book is full of portraits of demons, and here are some of them. Apollyon, Bilial, Theutis, Asmodeus, the Incubus, Ophis, the Spirit Antichrist, Aster, Astaroth, Abaddon, Mammon, reproduced in hand-tinted colour plates, and as James might have said, drawn from the life. Some of the principles of Barrett's treatise seem to underlie another of the earliest stories, Lost Hearts, written in 1892 or 93, published in 1895, but set in 1811. This is the tale of another participant in Barrett's English magical renaissance, the Regency occultist Mr Abney, whose, quote, library contained all the then available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras and the Neoplatonists. Mr Abney has committed the serial murder of children in pursuit of his occult investigations because, quote, it is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible or to assume any form he pleased by the agency of a soul, of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. And this is the passage to which Mr Abney alludes here in Alexander Roberts and James Donaldson's contemporaneous 1886 translation of the Clementine Recognitions. Now, when Niceta and I asked him how these things could be affected by magic art and what was the nature of that thing, Simon began thus to explain it to us as his associates. I have, said he, made the soul of a boy unsullied and violently slain and invoked by unutterable adjurations to assist me and by it all is done that I command. At the close of Lost Hearts, Mr Abney is murdered in his library, his chest torn open by the vengeful ghosts of his victims. And here are some images from the BBC uh, adaptation of, of Lost Hearts from uh, 1973. Um, look out for the fingernails 
uh, the ghostly fingernails you see there. Casting the Runes from 1911, perhaps James's most celebrated story, enacts a clash between two forms of scholarship. As Carswell, the rogue independent scholar and occultist, and Dunning, the representative of institutional knowledge, disagree over the meaning and reality of the supernatural. Dunning is a peer reviewer for a learned journal who at the beginning of the story rejects Carswell's submitted article in a manner which might appeal to many academics. Carswell responds to rejection by setting a demon on his hostile reviewer. This demon, in fact, um, this is the demon from Jacques Tourneur's 1957, Night of the Demon, an adaptation of Casting the Runes. There's Dunnings and Carswell's is an encounter which is played out in the British Library, where Carswell slips a demon summoning runic parchment into Dunning's notes on MS Harley 3586, which he is studying in the select manuscript room of the British Museum. So here's the select manuscript room at the time that James wrote the story. Uh, and on your right here is MS Harley 3586. And Harley 3586 is a deliberate choice on James's part. The manuscript of the story, in the British, which is in the British Library, the manuscript of Casting the Runes, shows James initially writing Harley 30 and then changing his mind. And Casting the Runes is the only James manuscript in the BL's possession. Uh, they acquired it deliberately because it uses the manuscript room as an important location. MS Harley 3586 contains two monastic registers from the 14th century and two letters from the 17th century, one from the antiquarian Thomas Blunt and one from the Balliol scholar Thomas Goad. Three years after the publication of Casting the Runes, James published an edition of the Welsh clergyman Walter Mapp's 12th century compendium De Nugis Curialium, which he went on to translate in 1930, 1923 as Courtier's Trifles. In their 1983 parallel text of James's editions, CNL Brook and RAB Miners, that is Roger Miners, who believed James could conjure a demon from a bottle, point out that one of the works which James consulted in preparing his 1914 edition was the Wormsley Priory Cartillary, which contains some documents relating to Walter Mapp. Wormsley is in Herefordshire on the Welsh border. This has led Patrick Murphy to suggest that Dunning is actually in the British Museum conducting research on Walter Mapp. I might take this a stage further and suggest that Dunning and James are conducting the same research, the one that leads to the summoning of a demon. In Mr. Humphreys and his inheritance, 1911, the last ghosts, the last story in More Ghost Stories, the eponymous protagonist, Mr. Humphreys, inherits a country house, which contains a library and a maze, each of which is an emblem of the other. At the center of the maze is a globe covered in occult illustrations and symbols. Around the place of the head, the woods, Princeps Tenebrarum, the Prince of Darkness, could be deciphered 
Near the last, a man in long robes and a high cap, standing in a circle and addressing two shaggy demons who hovered outside, was described as Hostani's Magus. Shaggy, we remember, was James's favourite adjective for the demons of illustrated manuscripts, and his stories habitually exhibit a terror of hairy monsters. Hostanis was the legendary mage of the Persian Emperor Xerxes I, and was credited by Pliny the Elder with being the inventor of written magic. By which means he introduced sorcery to the Greek world and, quote, scattered, as it were, the seeds of the hideous craft along the way, infecting the world with it. Hostanes was, according to the Octavius of the Latin Christian apologist Marcus Minucius Felix, quote, the foremost of those magi, both in eloquence and art, the same Hostanes also has told us of earthly demons, wandering spirits, and enemies of mankind. These demons, according to Minucius Felix, were the source of the magi's power. Whatever miraculous feats they perform, they do so through demons. Like Simon Magus, Hostanis has a, had a reputation for black magic, propounding in Lynn Thorndike's words, such remedies as drinking human blood or utilizing in magic compounds and ceremonies parts of the corpses of men who have been violently slain. Immediately on arriving at his new home, Mr. Humphreys makes a resolution. He had all the predisposition to take an interest in an old library, and there was every opportunity for him here to make systematic acquaintance with one. For he learned from Cooper that there was no catalogue, save the very superficial one made for the purposes of probate. The drawing up of a catalogue raisonné would be a delicious occupation for winter. They were probably treasures to be found too, even manuscripts, if Cooper might be trusted. And in parallel to cataloguing the library, Mr Humphreys also maps the maze. As he sits in the library, poring over this map, he notices a hole at the center of it. But surely this was a very odd hole. It seemed to go not only through the paper, but through the table on which it lay. Yes, and through the floor below that, down and still down, even into infinite depths. Oh yes, and far down there was a movement and the movement was upwards towards the surface. Nearer and nearer it came, and was of a blackish grey colour, with more than one dark hole. It took shape of a face, a human face, a burnt human face, and with the odious writhings of a wasp creeping out of a rotten apple, there clambered forth an appearance of a form, waving black arms prepared to clasp the head that was bending over them. As they would be a generation later for the other great librarian fabulist, Jorge Luis Borges, for James, the library and the labyrinth were emblems not only of one another, but for the universe. Furthermore, 
the catalogue, attempting to impose order and meaning on multiplicity, was for James a grimoire, a book of demons. Finally then, the tractate Midoth. Ah, libraries are fine places, Mrs. Simpson says in the tractate Midoth. But for all that, books have played me a sad turn, or rather a book has. This story draws heavily for its effect and meaning, both on the physical layout of Cambridge University Library and on its cataloging system. I've got, some, I've got the idea there's something wrong in the atmosphere of the library, one of the librarians says. Fully to understand why requires rather specialist historical knowledge. The Tractate Midoth was written in 1911, the same year as both Casting the Runes and Mr Humphreys, as part of the burst of creativity leading up to the publication of more ghost stories of an antiquary. As the story opens, we enter Cambridge University Library. Towards the end of an autumn afternoon, an elderly man with a thin face and grey Piccadilly weepers pushed open the swing door to the vestibule of a certain famous library. The story recounts the battle of wits and wills between John Eldred and his cousin Mary Simpson both of whom are attempting to track down the will of their elderly and malicious relative, Dr. Rant, which is hidden inside a book somewhere in the library. One of the first issues the story raises is of, is of library access. Who should be allowed into libraries? The library, Penny Fielding writes, is both a space and a system. As both space and system, the library was contested in the early 20th century. Was it a private collection belonging to closed institutions or a public space like a museum or an exhibition? As a graduate of Cambridge University, Mr. Eldred has access to the library and borrowing rights, whereas Mrs. Simpson does not. While she might theoretically have been a member of one of the two women's colleges established by 1911, Girton and Newnham, she could not have been a graduate of Cambridge until as late as 1948. James, it should be noted, opposed women's university education in all its forms, along with every other progressive idea or movement he encountered. Mrs. Simpson therefore enlists the help of Mr. Garrett, an assistant librarian in her quest. Oops. Garrett occupies a role and position which is liminal to and interstitial within the various hierarchies of the library. He has access and movement, though not status and position. He fetches books for a living and lodges in rooms not far from the station. But unlike the library's various doorman and desk attendants, he is not one of James's comic working class stereotypes. He's not exactly a scholar, but nor is he a woman or a servant. The tractate Midoth sets a cryptographic challenge. It focuses on deciphering the meaning of a very specific code, the number or numbers 11334. 
These numbers are the only clue Dr. Rant gives his niece Mary as to the whereabouts of the codicil to his will, which bequeaths his property to her rather than Eldred. James had a deep interest in occulted meanings, in steganography, codes, ciphers and secret languages, and was very familiar with, quote, the old books on secret writing, the steganographia of Joachim Trithemius, Selenius's cryptographia, and Bacon's De Augmentis Scientarium, and some more. The German Benedictine abbot and bibliophile Trithemius's steganographia, or secret writing, of 1499, was long believed to be a grimoire, which posited the existence of an occult code, which would enable communication with spirits and angels and its author was suspected of having commerce with demons. In his story, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas of 1904, James presents a fictionalized version of Trithemius in the person of the cryptographic Abbot Thomas von Eschenhausen, who summons a demon to guard his treasure. Garrett deciphers the code as a library class mark, 11.3.34. What? or where is 11.3.34. The current Cambridge University Library building opened in 1934. In 1911, when the story was written and set, the library was housed in the Cockerell Building, opened in 1842, and now the home of Gondolin and Keyes Library. Uh, this is a picture of the Cockerell Building you see in front of you. The 11 of 11.3.34 indicated subject heading, which is religion. Classes one to 34 in the Cockerell Building Library were dedicated to religious books. 11, the story tells us, is specifically the Hebrew class. The tractate Midoth draws on the redesigning of the physical space of the Cockerell Building in 1864 by the Cambridge librarian, Henry Bradshaw. And this is Bradshaw's own uh, design sketch for the layout of Cambridge University Library. A generation older than James, Henry Bradshaw was like him, a product of Temple Grove School, Eton and King's. He was appointed as assistant librarian at Cambridge in, in Cambridge in 1856, superintendent of manuscripts in 1859, during which time he completely reformed the university's manuscript department, and then university librarian from 1867 to his death in 1886. Bradshaw's practice as a cataloger, particularly of incunabula, was revolutionary, focusing on all aspects of the catalogued book, from illustration to bindings to provenance. James encountered Bradshaw as an undergraduate. Pfaff, his biographer, suggests that Bradshaw had the most lasting impact on MRJ's working methods and approaches of anyone he encountered as a student. One of James's 1895 catalogues, of the manuscript collection of Kings, pay tribute for, to Bradshaw for the brilliance and thoroughness of his work. In his autobiography, Eaton and Kings from 1926, James paints a worshipful, worshipful picture of Bradshaw. You felt there was nothing little about him and the reverence and love he inspired needed no explanation. Shane Leslie speculated that James may have built his scholarly ambitions around Bradshaw both aimed at being librarians and no more. The catalogue entry to close for 11.3.34 reads, Talmud, Tractate Midoth, 
with the commentary of Nachmanides, Amsterdam, 1707. Characteristically for James, this is a combination of genuine and invented scholarship. The Midot measurement is the 10th Mishnahic tractate of the order, order of Kodashim, holy things, the fifth order of the Mishnah laws, dealing with the religious ceremony of the Temple of Jerusalem. The Midot itself describes the measurements of the second Temple of Jerusalem. Nachmanides, Moses ben Nachman, 1194 to 1270, was indeed a celebrated commentator on the Talmud, though this actual work is fictional. Furthermore, there is indeed a book in Cambridge University Library with the class mark 11334. And it was indeed published in Amsterdam, though a century or so later than the Tractate Midoth. And it is a treatise on the persecution of Christians by the Emperor Decius rather than a Talmudic commentary. Uh, here it is, uh, the uh, Disputatio de Christianorum Vexatione Deciana uh, by Taco Hayo van der Hornet, Amsterdam, 1838. What is located at 11.334 then is the book at the center of the story's labyrinth, which is the library itself. And I hope you can see this. I can see my, my cursor here. Uh, these are the stairs you go up to. Uh, here's 11 over here, uh, right at the center of the labyrinth. In Mr. Humphreys and his inheritance, Mr. Humphreys either locates the center of the maze with ease or not at all, becoming hopelessly lost. Simultaneously in the tractate Midoth, Mr. Garrett can sometimes locate the book immediately at class mark 11, 334, while at other times it is impossible to find. Mr. Humphreys's maze contains an inscription, penetrans ad interiora mortis, penetrating to the inner places of death. Class 11 is the class, quote, or cubicle opening upon the central alley of a spacious gallery in which the Hebrew books were placed. A section of the library in which the light isn't very good and which has a musty, a musty smell, an unnaturally strong smell of dust. Eldred, whose name is an uneasy concatenation of Eldritch and Dread, refuses to enter the library any further than the vestibule and certainly won't go and get the book himself and cannot bear to hear Garrett give a detailed account of what he finds at 11.334. What does he find there? At the centre of Cambridge University Library, Mr Garrett encounters a terrifying supernatural creature who is simultaneously a dry and dusty scholar at first glance, a clergyman reading at the table, and another version of Canon Albrecht's spider demon. He turned around and let me see his face, which I hadn't seen before. I tell you again, I'm not mistaken, though for one reason or another, I didn't take in the lower part of his face. I did see the upper part, and it was perfectly dry, and the eyes were very deep sunk, and over them, from the eyebrows to the cheekbones, there were cobwebs thick. Here's the image from uh, the 2017 BBC adaptation. As often with James, explanations are left uncertain, inconclusive, but this seems to be the ghost or the decomposing corpse 
of Dr. Rant himself, who was interred after his death, sitting at a table in his ordinary clothes in a brick room that he'd made underground in a field near his house. Of course, the country people say he's been seen about there in his old black cloak. It is implied that Dr. Rant's will is a form of satanic contract. I don't think you'll find the witnesses in a hurry, he tells Mary. At the climax of the story, in the process of tearing the sheet containing the will from the flyleaf fly of the tractate Midoth, Eldritch, Eldred is attacked and killed by a demon, which manifests out of the book itself. Two arms enclosing a mass of blackness came before Eldred's face and covered his head and neck. On closer inspection, Garrett finds a thick black mass of cobwebs and as he stirred it gingerly with his stick, several large spiders ran out of it into the grass. Canon Albrecht's demon, we recall, resembled one of the awful bird-catching spiders of South America translated into human form. The medical examination of Mr. Eldred's corpse finds black dust smeared over his face and in his mouth. Biblioclasty, the damaging of books, the wrong kind of acquisitive scholarship undertaken by the wrong people for the wrong reasons has deadly consequences in James's fiction. But the moral economy of the Tractate Midoth is far from clear cut and may not in fact exist at all. Eldred is a man of mean, sharp ways, who connives to disinherit his cousin, but his death is not a straightforward case of supernatural moral retribution. The story's malign supernatural force attacks whoever gets close to 11334, and an encounter with it leaves Garrett bedridden for several days. As with Papias, or the Clementine Recognitions, or MS Harley 3586. Cambridge University Library 11334 sees James transforming the raw material of his scholarly research into something altogether horrifying, as though he was simultaneously dunning the respectable institutional scholar and Carswell, the rogue occultist and purveyor of rejected knowledge. Libraries, their catalogues and their contents were codes to be deciphered or labyrinths to be penetrated and mapped, but certainly not by everybody. In the wrong hands, and often even in the right ones, scholarship could be a dangerous endeavor. The title of his final collection of stories published in 1925 is surely meant to be summative, a warning to the curious. For M.R. James, Scholarship was to be approached with extreme caution, as libraries could be terrifying places, labyrinths full of demons and monsters. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Professor Jones. That was um, superb. I'm just trying to find how to start my video again. Great. Uh, yes, thank you so much. That was absolutely superb. I did forget to mention um, in the beginning, we do have a Q&A function. So if you have any questions, um, just drop them in there. We have some already. Uh, usually I jump in with my own, but I think we're a bit um, strained for time. <laughs> we have a question here from Eve Patton. 
um, a question on religion. How do the demonic or haunted library sites sit alongside or encounter to the theological contexts, predominantly Anglican, of the university colleges themselves? And then I don't know if this is a bit of shade coming from our uh, <laughs> our uh, director of the Long Room Hub. Uh, P.S. You only just got away with the Mr. Humphrey slide. <laughs> I was wondering who'd notice. Uh, yeah. OK. I mean, th th this is this is a complicated one um, uh, b because uh, uh, James himself was very unusual um, uh, uh, amongst the um, uh, academic scholars of, of, of his time, and certainly uh, uh, amongst his circle, um, in that he did not take holy orders. Um, uh, uh, although he he lives at a time uh, when the um, uh, the the um, the the definition of a university and certainly the definition of Cambridge University uh, is 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 changing. So it's becoming more secular. Um, uh, it's becoming less less of a seminary and more of a research institution. Uh, the, the idea of 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 academia is becoming uh, more kind of um, uh, scholarly and professionalized and less um, kind of gentlemanly and antiquarian. Uh, and, and, and James himself sits, sits on the very cusp. Um, he has a foot in both of these, both of these worlds. Um, uh, his father uh, was a uh, Church of England clergyman, an Anglican clergyman, um, as was uh, his brother, as were, um, uh, uh, as I say, many, many of his, many of his friends and some of his colleagues um, as well. Uh, and he resisted, he deliberately resisted um, um, some very heavy pressure uh, coming from his father and coming from others uh, uh, to, to go into the church. Um, so that it, it is, I think, a very deliberate uh, um, uh, 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 decision and gesture on, 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 on his part uh, not to do so. Um, that's not to say uh, uh, that, that, that he is a, um, uh, that, that, that he's a, a, a a more modern figure, or that he represents a more modern uh, conceptional version of, of, of the university. Very often he does not, uh, but but it, it is to say I think that that he's often sort of um, sort of eccentric um, uh, uh, to the direction um, um, that that the university uh, was 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 traveling in. I mean, I see um, uh, the, there's there's another question there um, uh, about whether James himself dabbled in in in, in the occult. Um, and uh, we we simply we simply don't know. I mean, it, it it has been suggested that he did, but he certainly had a very strong interest in in the occult. And, and I, I mean, I've heard plausible arguments that the reason he resisted going into holy orders um, uh, uh, was because he had a strong um, um, and, and actually quite practical interest uh, in in the occult and in 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 in, in a kind of black magic. Um, I, I simply don't know. Um, uh, uh, th there's very much that we don't know uh, about uh, about uh, uh, James, but but, but uh, I, I I I think that's it. That 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 he he sits at an oblique angle to the uh, uh, to the direction of the university. Yes, thank you. And you're right, we did have a question from uh, Matthew Banks, and he mentioned um, that James may have dabbled in the occult like his friends, the Benson brothers. Um, I don't know if that means more to you than it does to me. <laughs> but um, you, we have a question from uh, Claire Clark. Ah, uh, uh, Claire, to be asked in the style of Jerry Seinfeld, no, I'm sorry. 
uh, <laughs> what's the deal with all the spiders? Sorry, Claire, it's the best I can do. Yeah, the, I mean, the deal with all the spiders is 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 simultaneously kind of well, is is primarily personal. Um, uh, he himself, James, was was a lifelong arachnophobe. Uh, absolutely terrified um, of, of, of spiders uh, and uh, uh, you know uh, many accounts uh, many of his letters uh, um, uh, testify to to this uh, um, uh, his um, his his one of the things that 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 that, that uh, most disturbed him about his 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 Temple Grove preparatory school when when he first went to school was that there there were spiders everywhere um, uh, and um, all of all of his friends testify in various ways to his his very personal. Um, uh, 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 terror um, of of spiders. So I, I think that, that, that there is a that, that, that there's a very personal psychological reason for that. Yeah, his descriptions of kind of creepy crawlies are they're visceral. They're really intensely visual. They're hairy and they're oh. like, yeah, no, I, I can't believe that he was a, a an arachnophobe because he describes them in such kind of detail. Uh, we have Bernie Smurphy saying, "Not a question, but I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to curse Professor Jones for making me have flashbacks to the ter terrifying 1970s BBC adaptation of Lost Hearts." Oh yeah, it's good. It has a hoody goody in it. Yeah, I, I I still imagine it as a kind of a, a, a an accordion, but it's not mm. quite. You have yeah. to roll it, wind it. <laughs> Do we have any more questions? Oh, we had a question from one of our panelists about um, actually um, who is a medievalist. Uh, so this would be right up her street. Um, if I can find it. Oh, yes. Um, did, did James have a very favorite medieval demon or devil? Or perhaps from a manuscript he might have read or been fascinated or obsessed with. Oh, I, do, I don't know. Um, um, I, I, I uh, I'll go with 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 Helen Grant's um, account of Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, and that the the, the 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 demon in that is Onias, if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, uh, who is the um, uh, who who is certainly uh, the, the the kind of major presiding demon. Of um, uh, the Testament of Solomon, a, a work that he he knew very well. Uh, and the other figure who turns up um, uh, uh, on a number of occasions in his stories um, is Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Um, uh, and you know, in 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 various stories, um, there are you know um, uh, infestations of flies. Um, uh, um, uh, Invisible or barely seen gigantic flies. Uh, Beelzebub himself seems to manifest in 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 one of the stories as well. And uh, what we've one minute for our final question for Nora Moroni. Um, did James ever include or describe librarians themselves in his stories? Surely some of the most terrifying beings ever to stalk libraries. And yeah. now that we're not going to have time to answer that in full, but maybe if you had a few. Well, in the in the Tractate Midoth um, is is a story uh, largely set amongst librarians, mostly benign librarians. Um, uh, it, it 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 should be said. Um, uh, he writes in very strange terms in his autobiography uh, about Henry Bradshaw, uh, uh, though, um, uh, who who liked getting students into his rooms to tickle the palms of his hands, um, uh, uh, at, at which he would purr like a cat. 
yeah, I'm just imagining George Galloway um, circa 2007 <laughs> in Big Brother, um, but we'll not go there. Um, so anyway, thank you uh, so, so much for that, Professor Jones. That was superb. Um, and thank you, everybody, for coming. And thank you to the Long Room Hub and to my um, self-isolating co-conveners. And just a quick plug also for our next event, which is on the 1st of March in two weeks' time when uh, the wonderful Alisa Bulfan will be talking to us about fan tales of natural and environmental catastrophe. So details for that can be found on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. Uh, thank you everybody for coming and thank you, Professor Jones. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.